Good day, everyone, and once again, thanks for tuning in to the Nasty Pasty podcast, the show that takes the phenomenon of video nasties and blasts it apart by showing how other films of the same era were just as nasty, but they didn't get into trouble. It's hard to imagine that today that government-sanctioned censorship would happen on such a blindly panicky scale, but it did surprisingly, though it all happened before I was born, so what do I know? I try my best. I mean, I've collected most of the originally listed nasties, and I must say that so far I'm not phased by them that much. As the films themselves have been covered constantly, I chose instead to focus on the films that weren't officially listed, to find connections, similarities, and of course, the hypocrisies of only focusing on these particular films. Yes, UK government, I'm looking at you. Last week on Nasty Pasty, we covered two films with miniature murderers, whilst this week I'm focusing on location horrors, horror films whose location is as much a part of the horror as the actual antagonist. Today's films are 1988's cheesy slasher Amsterdamd and 1973's supernatural thriller Don't Look Now. Two different kettles of fish if ever there were some, but it's not uncommon to have a film's shooting location to be a part of the film's horror character. I mean, the Hostel series relies heavily on the Eastern European country, Slovakia, to generate an unsavoury, insidious atmosphere, whilst Fulci's New York Ripper wouldn't be half as effective if it didn't portray the grimy streets of New York City. In today's films, we're travelling to the weirdly wonderful city of Amsterdam and the quaint, tranquil waters of Venice. So let's get straight in with Dick Mass's Amsterdamd. A mysterious diver wanders the canals of Amsterdam, stealing a large butcher's knife from a Chinese restaurant and stalking the red light district. A sex worker finishes up for the night and is violently thrown out of a taxi after the driver attempts to force himself on her. Suddenly, she's approached and stabbed to death by the mysterious diver, all witnessed by a bag lady. The next morning, the body is found by a travelling canal tour, prompting local plainclothes policeman Eric Visser to investigate the scene where the bag lady explains that it was a monster who came from the canal. Later that night, two men are in the canals collecting water samples when they see a disturbance under the water. One of them suddenly disappears, and when his friend pulls the anchor up, his friend's head is jammed onto it. He swims away to the shore, but is grabbed by the killer and dragged back in. 
Visser investigates again, meeting with an old friend called John, who belongs to the River Police, who've located a depth meter in the water, suggesting that they are dealing with a diver. Further evidence during the autopsy confirms that they are dealing with a diver, prompting John to pair up with Visser to solve the crime. Visser goes to a prominent diving school in Amsterdam to check their equipment stores and meets diver Laura and psychiatrist Martin, but fails to turn up any further clues. Later that night, a charity collector is killed when she drops her money tin and is seized from the path and straight into the canal. John finds that the depth meter was covered in a high concentration of salt, signalling that the diver usually works out in the ocean. Going to see Laura at her art gallery, Visser gets himself a date with her, while his daughter Annika goes on a lookout for the killer with her friend Willie, unaware that they very nearly encounter him for real. The next day during the daytime, the killer brutally kills a woman paddling in a dinghy on the canal, prompting the mayor to press the police chief to replace Visser, while Laura visits Martin, who's aware of her fling with Visser. Visser, along with John, goes to bust a potential suspect who fits the criteria, only to find his apartment empty with the suspect escaping on his motorcycle. A car chase ensues, with the suspect eventually ending up stuck on an open bridge, with Visser taking him into custody. After a bout of questioning, Visser is unconvinced that they have the right person, and goes to see Laura for comfort, with the pair eventually ending up in bed together. Meanwhile, a man on a boat is surprised when the killer cuts the power to his vessel, and the rope mooring him to the dock. Spotting something underwater, the man grabs a shotgun, but is unable to stop the boat sinking as the killer destroys the hull, letting the water seep in. The next day, John is one of the officers on hand to investigate the vessel, only to find the man dead inside, as well as the killer still on the boat, who stabs John and slashes his throat. The police give chase to the killer as he swims away and try to trap him in a canal lock, only to realise that the killer's gas cylinder has floated into the lock, which is what is spouting bubbles. Visser arrives and receives word that a diving shed nearby has been broken into, prompting him to chase the killer, who repels them with a harpoon gun. Eventually, the killer flees on a speedboat, forcing Visser to give chase in the same manner, through the many miles of Amsterdam's canals. Just as the killer gives Visser the slip, he collides with a small tanker which explodes. Not chancing it, Visser enters a nearby sewer tunnel to check if the killer is still around. And sure enough, he finds clues to that theory. As he rises to street level, the killer suddenly appears and harpoons him in the shoulder, causing him to fall back into the sewer, but not before Visser shoots him in the mask. Waking up in hospital, Visser remains under the doctor's watch, while Laura returns to Martin's home for another therapy session. But he's not at home. Investigating a noise, Laura descends into the basement, where she finds a freshly wet diving suit and a broken diving mask. Suspecting that Martin's the killer, she tries to call Visser, only for Martin to suddenly return. As Visser awakens to the news, Laura tries to flee Martin's home while he's playing the piano, but she alerts him accidentally, forcing her to knock him out with a boat oar. Almost straight away after, the killer bursts out of the water and tries to grab her, just as Visser arrives and drives him off with gunfire. Martin awakens and reveals that the killer was a previous patient of his, a friend who was massively disfigured and mutated when he dove near some radioactive refuse underwater on a job for a chemical company. He's deteriorated ever since, becoming more and more maniacal, and he lives in a small alcove near the canals. Back at his hideout, the killer forlornly commits suicide with a harpoon gun, just as Visser arrives. A few days later, Laura and Visser go pedaloing on the canal, with Visser pranking her that he's being pulled into the water by the killer. The canals. They are a passageway into the heart of this international city. Dark and protective, they offer sanctuary to the terror that stalks from their depths. He will surface. Kill. 16 stab wounds, at least 8 were fatal. And vanish without a trace. Four dead in four days. All I know is that something's got to be done. For the canals now run with blood. What is it? Depth meter. Standard equipment for a diver. Martin? Martin? 
They've got to find him, catch him, or kill him, because time is running out. Vestron Pictures presents Amsterdam. This city is murder. Coming so late in the 1980s, you'd think that a slasher film so late on would be unable to offer anything new. To an extent, you'd be right. Amsterdam is rather unoriginal when it comes to its plot structure and narrative points, as well as the general tone and the vibe of the production. But where it does excel is its rather campy, over-exaggerated style of affairs, with a very bizarre murderer, conspicuously outrageous characters, and a uniquely vibrant setting. Directed by Dick Mass, Amsterdam is a Dutch slasher that rather equally combines elements of giallo, poliziotesque, and the traditional stalk and slash tropes. It doesn't necessarily rely too heavily on either aspect, but it rather ambles between them in a light, breezy way. The focus on Visser's investigation and his fellow cop's efforts rather likens it to that of a police thriller, with Stapel's character being given plenty of opportunity to act like a chauvinist and save women from peril whilst punching up the bad guys. The stalking sequences and the nighttime shots are very similar to a giallo, especially with the quiet European city streets of Amsterdam. In combination with the rather blazing primary colours of yellows, reds and blues that the film frequently employs, this feels more like one of the sleazier, grimier examples of Gialli, despite the film not featuring that much nudity at all. The slasher elements like the final girl and the rather high body count are also present, but the film does lack the signature gore that would otherwise cement its genre quite definitively. From these elements, Amsterdam showcases a real duality with most of what it shows – it's a police film which shows just as much of the victims as it does the police. It's a giallo without the usual female nudity and the stylistic flourishes. And it's a slasher without any blood. This is not to say that the film fails, because it certainly doesn't. But it can be a little bit roguish in terms of where it stands on the genre scale. The dual-natured aspect of the film's style also bleeds into the film's colourful characters. Main guy Visser is our heroic cop figure, who's actually a nice bit of rough and rugged eye candy for certain members of the audience. His life is almost split in two, however. He works long hours at his job, and he leaves his daughter Annika at home, so much so that she has learned to be independent of him and she takes care of herself. Laura also has the two major aspects to her character. She's a novice diver and seemingly very confident, but she also visits a psychiatrist to quell the trauma from a dead husband. This duality is also present in the minor characters too, like the bag lady, who's seemingly kind-hearted enough to ask of the first victim's safety when she walks past, but then she has a kind of miniature tirade when she's questioned by the police, saying that the killer was punishing her for her sins. The hooker in question also refuses to engage in sex with the taxi driver, a little odd considering what you'd expect a lady of the night to be like. There's the charity worker who's stealing the money from her collection tin, the police officers who are ogling at women's figures, the two boaters who are collecting water samples, not for altruistic research, but for insidious blackmail. The whole film has this other side to its nature that rather reflects the location of Amsterdam quite well. Nothing is quite what it seems there, and the banal can become the extreme in just a fraction of a second. It's also just rather indicative of the rich, varied people that you'd expect to meet in such a place, which is heavy on vice, entertainment and culture. To our pleasure, of course. The only character who doesn't really have that dual nature anymore is the killer. I mean, once he was a prominent diver of excellent credentials, but after a radioactive incident, he's reduced singularly to a homicidal maniac who preys on the society he feels has betrayed him. He does nothing else except wait to kill his next victim in his little den, using the canals as concealment and striking when the opportunity presents it. There's almost a pseudo-jallo reference to the black gloves of the typical killer, with the killer's diving suit covering the hands in the same way, and the diving mask is a bit more of a modern interpretation of the sunglasses and the face coverings of films past. There's loads of other things that the film gets right though too, one of which is the curious set pieces – because the traditional gore is missing, the director opts instead to go for visually interesting sequences that still excite without using that much blood. For example, the first victim is killed in a rather vanilla stalk and slash sequence, but the discovery of her body is genius, with a canal boat tour bumping into her body as it hangs from a bridge, smearing its blood all over the glass canopy before dropping into the vehicle amongst the multiple screaming tourists. 
When there's a scene like this in the film's first five minutes, it leaves a good lasting impression that doesn't really ebb away, especially in the face of the other great setups. Another highlight is the snatching of the charity collector when she bends over to grab her tin, or the Jaws-like moment when the killer cuts through a small inflatable boat, twirls the knife around in front of a girl's crotch, before slicing towards her violently. I mean, you don't see the payoff, but the setup was so bonkers and silly that you just have to love it. Arguably, though, the best sequence of the lot is a long chase sequence between Visser and the killer on speedboats through the canals of the city. Apparently, it's a reference to 1971's Puppet on a Chain, but this whole chase was filmed in both Amsterdam and the neighbouring city of Utrecht, and it works on so many levels. It does go on for quite a bit, but it's endearing enough to keep you entertained, though actor Hube Stapel would probably disagree, as he was injured quite badly during the filming of this scene. A stuntman had steered incorrectly, causing the boat to crash into a wall, breaking one of Stapel's ribs, so much so that it stuck out of his chest and it left him with numb fingers for an entire three weeks. The other aspect of the film that works massively is the humour. An early scene has Visser arresting a knife-wielding thief in a cake shop by slamming his face into a cake and cuffing him, prompting a testy outcry from the shop owner, I use the best ingredients only! In response, Visser sticks his finger in another cake and eats a bit of the cream, while the thief also licks the cake that he's been slammed into. Visser's daughter, Annika, though, has a lot of the humorous dialogue, like suggesting that her dad is masturbating when he's just simply in the bath, or stating, I hate French cooking, when given the option of brains and broccoli for dinner. When Visser is about to chase the killer via speedboat, his colleague Vermeer also gets on board, but instead of waiting, Visser just takes off and causes his friend to fall into the canal. Of course, some of the humour, though, is unintentional too, like when Laura and Visser are in the restaurant and she says, let's just change the subject, which prompts Visser to say, okay, young lady, how about sex? Which, oddly, makes her smile. When they finally do get down to the dirty, Laura makes the most over-the-top sex noises ever, which is also frighteningly hilarious. This attention to humour really helps the film along, as one then enjoys it not for extreme gore or violence purposes, but for just sheer entertainment value. The director is clearly focused on providing the audience with thrills and laughs in this hybrid of a movie, and because the end result is so charming and stylized in its execution, it's memorable for all the right reasons. Hube Stapel played the main chap Eric Visser. He'd been in the director's previous horror effort, The Lift, in 1983, and has continued to make appearances in both Dutch films and TV over the years, and even still today. Monique van der Ven, who played Laura, had previously been in an episode of Starsky and Hutch, and she was also in 1978's Inheritance. And she's subsequently gone on not only to appear in film, but to direct her own, such as 2008's Summer Heat. Serge Henry Valka played Vermeer, Visser's psychic, and he'd been in the lift with his co-star as well, and also 1978's Paradise Lost and 1981's The Girl with the Red Hair. These three aforementioned actors, Stapel, Van der Ven and Valka, also provided their voices for the English dub, as they could all speak fluent English as well. Edwin Bakker, who had the very small role of Willie, Annika's friend, ended up working as an electrician and a gaffer on many films, like An American Werewolf in Paris, The Preacher, Ocean's Twelve, Juice Bigelow, European Gigolo, and 2006's Black Book. Dutch director Dick Maas had worked on the aforementioned lift in 1983, before going on to make 1986's Flodder and the sequels Flodder in America and Flodder 3. He'd also worked on some direct-to-video Young Indiana Jones segments, before going on to modern productions like Killer Babes, Saint, Quiz, and 2016's Prey. He was offered at one stage to direct A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, but he turned it down in order to do Amsterdam. He does regretted this decision since, as he believes it could have been an international breakthrough for him. Producer Lauren Giels stuck with Mass for most of his films, specifically the Flodder series, whilst cinematographer Mark Felpalan joined Edwin Bakker on most of his films, like Black Book and also Juice Bigelow European Gigolo, before working in the late noughties on mostly documentaries. The editor, Hans van Dongen, and yes, that's his real name, also reappeared for the Flodder films, whilst the assistant director, Myrna van Gielst, went on to work prominently on the Flodder TV series. 
Though the film lacks in the gore department, there were nonetheless three special effects guys. Though the film lacks in the gore department, there were nonetheless three special effects guys. One of them was Peter Biggs, who'd worked on 2001 A Space Odyssey, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, Superman, Kroll and Supergirl before landing the job on Amsterdam. He subsequently went on to Who Framed Roger Rabbit later that same year. Ricky Farns, one of the others, had already worked on a multitude of TV productions and Superman 3 before working on Amsterdam himself. He's subsequently gone on to many well-known projects, like 1999's The Haunting, Enigma, 2004's Thunderbirds, An American Haunting, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, The Half-Blood Prince, and the two parts of The Deathly Hallows. Lastly, there was Martin Gutteridge, who'd worked on American Werewolf in London, Superman 3, Highlander, and 1986's Little Shop of Horrors. While featuring the vibes of an 80s nasty, Amsterdam just isn't a candidate for video nastydom, mainly because it arrived far too late anyway. By 1988, the Video Recordings Act in the UK was already in effect, so there was no furore anymore about violence in films. I mean, relatively speaking, anyway. There's several versions of the film floating around, though, for connoisseurs. There's a TV cut, which removes quite a few of the extraneous conversation sequences to shorten the film to around about 90 minutes, but all of the attack sequences and the exciting bits are intact. In Germany, the shot of the killer harpooning himself in the head was cut out entirely, as well as subsequent releases in that country. The film made it to British shores, though, in 1989 from Vestron Video, where the film was passed after a six-second cut was made. Bewilderingly, it was to the scene of the woman being slashed through her inflatable boat, simply because the knife twirls in front of her private parts for a few seconds. The BBFC has always took issue with the combination of sex with violence, for fear of eroticising any sexual violence, but this bit in particular is so vanilla and it more comes across as humorous than anything insidious. The cut was waived anyway in 2007 when it was finally passed uncut, and it's now available on DVD from Shameless Films in the UK and many other companies in other countries. With our first film of the week done, let's just move on to our next example, the famous Don't Look Now. On a rainy day, little girl Christine is playing with a ball outside, while her parents, John and Laura, work indoors. When her ball falls into a nearby pond, John feels a bad omen and rushes outside, but is too late to save his daughter from drowning. Some years later, John and Laura are in Venice so that John can help restore a church that is suffering decay and dilapidation. At a restaurant where the couple are dining, they become aware of an elderly pair of sisters who seem to look over at them. In the bathroom, one of the sisters, Wendy, explains to Laura that her sister Heather is blind, but has the gift of second sight. Heather enthusiastically claims that she can see Christine laughing alongside her parents, and describes her red raincoat perfectly, causing Laura to faint when she returns to her husband. John is sceptical upon what hearing she has heard, but he's pleased that Laura is so elated by the news. 
The pair return to their hotel room and wash before having passionate sex and then going out to eat for the evening. The pair take a wrong turn on their way home though and end up separated when John suddenly hears a scream in the distance and a small figure in a red raincoat running across a bridge some distance away. The next day while working at the church, Laura encounters Wendy and Heather again and wishes to talk further about Christine whilst John looks visibly uncomfortable. Heather explains that John also has the gift but is actively resisting it while Laura accepts an invitation from them to talk further at their home. It goes awry though, however, when John peeks in through the keyhole, disturbing Heather to the point of a breakdown. When Laura returns home, she tells John that Heather prophesied that he's in danger whilst he's still in Venice, which John vehemently denies. In the middle of the night, the couple receive a call from their son Johnny's school, explaining that he's suffered an accident. Laura believes that this is what the sisters meant and leaves immediately for England. When working the next day, John is nearly killed when a platform gives way and after walking off the shock, notices that the police have dragged a woman's corpse from the canals, the latest victim of a murderer that's on the loose. When returning back to his hotel, he notices Laura on a boat dressed in black along with Heather and Wendy, but is told by the hotel staff that his wife has not returned. He goes to the police to explain the situation and ends up seeing the small figure in red again on the way home. Diverting, he goes to where Heather and Wendy lived, only to find the apartment vacant. Though going to make a call to England, he's shocked to hear that Laura did indeed arrive in England and speaks to her. Going to the local police station, he liberates Heather from her arrest and takes her home, feeling extremely guilty at causing the situation. Wendy meets them at the door, just as Heather goes into a painful seizure, causing John to leave. As he's gone, Heather exclaims to bring him back and not to let him go, just as John spies the little red figure again. Giving chase, John finally catches up to the strange figure, only for them to turn around to reveal not Christine, but a small dwarf who brandishes a meat cleaver and slices his throat open. As he falls down, he realises every sign he's witnessed was a premonition of his own death. Shortly after, Laura, Heather and Wendy attend John's funeral, paraded on a boat just like John's vision from before. You do remind me of my daughter. Oh, really? Yes. Only her hair's dark. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah. here, take your handkerchief. You're sad. You're so sad and there's no need to be. <sighs> my sister's psychic. She wants you to know. I've seen her. And she wants you to know that she's happy. I've seen your little girl sitting between you and your husband and and she was laughing. Yes. Oh, yes, she's with you. She's with you, my dear. And she's laughing. I'm sorry if we're scared. She's wearing a, a shiny little man. She's laughing, she's laughing, she's happy as can be. Oh, you're very like her. The forehead and the eyes. Is that better? Yes. Shall I fetch your husband? No, 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 no. I'm all right, thank you. Good. Jolly good. I think if you just, if you just leave me alone, I'll be fine. All right, my dear. Did you... Did you really see her? She was there. She was there. Nicholas Rogue's atmospheric horror is considerably more well-known and well-regarded than the majority of the films that I normally cover. Back in the day, though, the film did have its share of controversy, and it actually owes a lot more to its contemporary giallo films and Italian bedfellows for its style. Nevertheless, Don't Look Now takes a vastly different direction with both its narrative, conclusion, and the ultimate message. While the horror elements are present, Don't Look Now is not focused on giving the viewer jump scares or frightening its audience with a monster or a killer. 
More realistically, the threat in Don't Look Now is lurking quietly in the background, subliminally omnipresent with a tangible feeling that danger is incoming at any moment. It's no surprise that the film's main theme is one of premonition and grief, ideas that are not quite concrete and they're not so easily definable. Like some of the best horrors, Rogue's film presents us with a drama, specifically one of a married couple who've gone through a grievous trauma. John and Laura are happily married with both a son, Johnny, and daughter, Christine, but this joyful existence is quite literally shattered when Christine drowns in a pond while left outside to play. It's not just the tragic accidental nature of her death that is so painful, it's the constantly reinforced idea that it was preventable, especially as John unknowingly has the gift of premonition. While both Laura and John suffer, Laura becomes elated at the news that Christine is happy and laughing on the other side when she talks to Wendy and Heather. John is decidedly less so, not only because he's more straight-laced and stubborn, but probably also because the notion of paranormal intervention makes the notion of Christine's death hurt more. The fact that John is male and Laura is female also does have some significance. Women are frequently purported to be much more sensitive than their male counterparts, and this film seems to reinforce that. The two old ladies are the ones who bring the psychic powers into the couple's life, and Laura is the one who's more open to this world. Even in minor examples, like when the headmaster phones the couple to inform them of Johnny's accident, his wife has to take the phone from him and explains the situation a lot better. Miscommunication is frequently bandied about by the male characters, like John who refuses to believe in any kind of supernatural occurrence, preferring to think that the ladies are targeting Laura for personal gain. He even follows Laura to the seance and gives the completely wrong impression that he's an intruder in the hotel. The main example of this, of course, is John's recurring failure to interpret the warnings he's given, whilst Laura is convinced unreservedly that John is in danger within Venice. It's also no accident that most of the native characters speak Italian, whilst our main protagonists speak English, providing a natural barrier of miscommunication that's repeated throughout. This failure of understanding also relates to one of the other important themes of the film, which is reality and time not quite functioning properly. The film has so many recurring themes and motifs that it often feels like a world that's not grounded in reality. Events happen which are strange and unusual, and the linearity of the film ends up a little in pieces because of it. The past intermingles with the present, and the future rips into reality with frequent premonitions of what's to come. The controversial love scene is one of those more obvious examples of this. The explicit sex acts are intercut with footage of the couple getting ready to go out to dinner. It seems to contextualise the sex by making it appear as if it's just one of their daily routines, just as important as getting changed and as banal as any other activity that a married couple would undertake. But it also feels fragmented, as though time is a little unstable. The fragmented nature of the film is also enhanced by the aforementioned motifs that frequently pop up, one of which is the colour red. Venice is portrayed as a rather drab city, with dingy waters, pockmarked grey buildings and churches that are falling into disrepair. Most of the colours in the film feel washed out and dulled, a purposeful pathetic fallacy to reflect the grief, depression and unspoken trauma of our main characters. But occasionally the colour red starkly shoots through, most iconically in the colour of Christine's and the strange figure's raincoats. Christine's ball that leads her to her watery grave is also red, with white geometric swirls on it, similar to the distortion of water and light. John's photograph that he's examining at this time also has a red figure on it, which then bleeds when he spills his glass of water. Later in the film, John wears a red scarf, whilst Laura dons red leather boots, and small elements of the backgrounds are also in stark crimson, like the flowers on the curtains in Laura's hospital ward, the flowers and the candles in church, Laura's handbag when the pair are out for dinner. The man who alerts the hotel guests to John's intrusion wears a red dressing gown, whilst the female murder victim is dragged from the water wearing a red jacket, seen just behind two people who are wearing red bobble hats. Finally, and most prominently, there's also the splash of blood when John is killed by the mysterious dwarf, which is rather reminiscent of the premonition he had before Christine's death. The colour red, though, is not the only recurring motif, with water being a rather important one, for obvious reasons, as it's the thing that causes Christine's demise. The accident is prefaced by John spilling a glass of water, and of course, it's raining heavily during the incident as well. 
The city of Venice also reflects this theme, bearing multiple channels of water which literally divide and fragment the city around the couple. Laura's first encounter with the old ladies is in a bathroom, surrounded by water receptacles, and her fall afterwards is illustrated with flying glasses of water which drench the floor. Most notably, in John's final visit with Heather and Wendy, he specifically denies an alcoholic drink and asks for a glass of water, the same drink that prefixed his child's death. Glass, too, seems to function as a common harbinger of peril. Johnny's riding his bike in the opening and absentmindedly runs over a pane of glass, breaking it. The projector that John is using has glass elements and the photo that he's looking at is of a stained glass window. Laura's bathroom encounter with the ladies is surrounded by mirrors and her subsequent fall also sends glasses crashing all over the floor. John's near-fatal fall in the church whilst checking the mosaic tiles notably happens when a loose plank shatters a small pane of glass before destroying the platform that John is balanced on. The two elements of glass and water also hearken to the idea of reflections and distortions, which is another indication that the material world appears false and illusory. John's visions are duplicates of what he thinks they are, just as the multiple reflections of Heather in the bathroom hearken to this, or John's innocent picking up of a submerged doll on the canal side mirrors the opening failed rescue. Even the book that Laura is reading in the opening is called Beyond the Fragile Geometry of Space, establishing straight away that we're in for a more metaphysical experience. Arguably, though, the most false doppelganger of all is the murderer, whom John continually mistakes for his daughter, only to find out the hard way that his reality is assuredly not what it appeared to be. The film is rather tragic in this way, as John's refusal to consider what he is seeing ultimately leads to a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, he follows Laura to the seance, and he appears to be an intruder to everyone else, which is the very thing that causes Heather and Wendy to switch hotels, making the future situation worse when he misinterprets the vision of Laura on the boat. His outright refusal to consider that he's in any danger in the city ultimately leads to his own death. The very action of him wanting to discount the murderer's appearance as his daughter gets him a slashed throat and nothing else. There's so many ways to read Don't Look Now that I'm sure entire dissertations and theses can and would have been written on its complexities. The long and short of all this purposeful subtext is that the film, as a horror film, is a rather slow burn. It's a little longer than average, and most of the film is spent masterfully building to the climax, which does arguably pay off in a surprising way. For fans of gore or action, however, the film is simply not geared towards that kind of experience. Rather like The Raindrops, Don't Look Now is a much more contemplative, deep type of horror. Admittedly, upon my first viewing of this film, I wasn't even sure if I liked it. I did find it to be a slower burn than most, and I wasn't sure if the climax was ultimately worth it. Because there's so much detail in the film to catch, much of the first viewing is spent just wondering exactly what's going on. This is definitely one of those instances, though, where a few repeat viewings makes all the difference. Once you know how the narrative works, there's much more comfort in immersing yourself in what the film is showing you, and the motifs and the subtleties are much easier to pick up on. The way the film is structured, though, means that the majority of the film is rather uneventful in terms of action or violence. So don't be expecting a bloodbath or anything more exciting than heavy dialogue. Despite the film coming across as a very accomplished, purposeful motion picture, the filming was not without its fair share of problems. The sex scene between John and Laura was the first scene to be shot in the film, strangely because it was the last-minute addition to the script from Rogue, who felt that the film was mainly the couple disagreeing and arguing. Despite appearing otherwise, both actors have since explained that the shoot was far from erotic, with director Rogue shouting directions such as get on top of her and lick her nipples. Both actors had to have champagne beforehand to settle their nerves, which is probably a good idea since one, that one scene took an entire day before Nicholas Rogue was satisfied. The scene is very effective at conveying the couple's closeness, but that didn't stop the controversy when it was released. The scene alone caused a lot of furore across the world due to its explicitness at the time. In the US, the scene had to be re-edited to avoid an X rating, and in Ireland, the scene was removed in its entirety. But ironically, the BBFC's James Furman resisted the controversy and explained quite publicly why the scene was justified in the context of the film and refused to censor it at all.
The scene where John nearly falls to his death was also nearly a disaster, as the stuntman refused to perform the scene as there was no insurance for the action. Sutherland instead offered to just perform it himself, attached to a wire in case the worst happened. While the stunt was performed successfully, the stunt coordinator would later comment that the wire supporting Sutherland was not designed to hold a person's weight and would easily have snapped if Sutherland had let go. The opening iconic drowning sequence also turned out to be a nightmare, as Sharon Williams, the young actress who played Christine, flew into a panic when she was under the water. Ultimately, the opening shot was achieved using three different doubles in a water tank rather than the actual pond. Venice itself was also rather difficult to work with, as the water levels would rise and dip at random, both affecting the continuity in the background and stranding the crew between different areas of the city. Some of the film's successes, however, were pure accidents, such as the scene in the church, which was entirely different in the script. Originally, John was to voice his concern for Laura's belief that Christine's spirit was still around, leading to Laura's grief worsening. On the day of shooting, however, Sutherland started a conversation with Christie about how he disliked the church, with her responding that it was quite a silly point of view. Rogue felt that this was much more in line with how the characters would act, so he ditched the script and went with the improvised dialogue. Another oddity was the actor playing Inspector Longy, who could not actually speak English, and he simply read his lines phonetically. This gave the eerie effect that his character was uncharacteristically cheery, and also distant at the same time. And another very happy accident was that the film's composer, Pino Donaggio, was met at random on a water taxi while Rogue was looking at locations in the city. Rogue took it as a sign and just hired him straight away. It's generally accepted that Don't Look Now is a bit of a masterpiece amongst horror films. I personally don't think it's a masterpiece in terms of horror, but it's certainly one of the most thought-provoking and brilliantly handled films of the 70s. For those who like their horror films with a more tangible threat, like fun gore or cheesy thrills, this is just not that type of movie. But for those who want a more thoughtful, subtle chiller with a slow burn, this would be perfect. Regardless, the film would influence a whole wealth of material, and it impressed a lot of people. The novella that the film was based on was written by Daphne du Maurier, who was utterly delighted at the film adaptation, considering it stronger than her writing. A whole gaggle of famous people count it amongst their favourites, including actor Tim Curry and director Danny Boyle. Its influence is still felt today, inspiring the yellow-coated slasher in Alfred Soule's Alice Sweet Alice, the sex scene in 1998's Out of Sight, the James Bond film Casino Royale, in which Bond pursues a woman in Venice wearing a red dress, Flatliners, which has Kiefer Sutherland, Donald Sutherland's son, stalked by a little girl in a red raincoat, and even the marital depiction in Lars von Trier's Antichrist. Without doubt, the film would inspire much more, and it should be celebrated as a seminal piece of work in cinema. Almost everyone was familiar with Canadian actor Donald Sutherland. With over 190 credits, his work is rather well known, and it's far too expansive to list fully. Some examples of his work, though, are the war comedy Kelly's Heroes, the science fiction film The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, cult movie Buffy the Vampire Slayer, disease flick Outbreak, and more recently the Hunger Games series as the sinister President Snow. A little-known fact, though, was that Sutherland wore a toupee throughout the entire shoot. British actress Julie Christie starred as the Dotorogonist Laura. She'd been in loads of things like Dr Zhivago, Fahrenheit 451, Far From the Madding Crowd, and 1965's Darling, in which she won the Oscar for Best Actress. In later years, she'd appear as Madame Rose Murter in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and also had an appearance in Finding Neverland. Hilary Mason, who played the psychic Heather, had other appearances in horror such as 1987's Dolls and 1995's Haunted alongside Kate Beckinsale. Massimo Serrato, who played the Bishop, also appeared in 1973's Love in a Woman's Prison, the Giallo film The Bloodstained Shadow, The Humanoid and video nasty Killer Nun. Renato Scarpa, who played the Inspector, would also continue to appear in films such as Argento's Suspiria and 1999's The Talented Mr Ripley. 
Leopoldo Trieste, who played the meek hotel manager, is quite recognisable from Mario Barva's video nasty, A Bay of Blood. But he also made appearances in the infamous Caligula and The Godfather Part 2. Finally, the infamous dwarf murderer was played by Adelina Poiriero, who unfortunately did nothing else, but she was notably chosen from a picture during the Rome casting calls by Rogue. She did subsequently, however, have a singing career, and she also made an appearance in the music video for Big Audio Dynamite's song, which references Don't Look Now explicitly. British director Nicholas Rogue started out in the film business rather early in 1947 as an editor, and eventually worked his way up to be a cinematographer and a second unit director on stuff like 1964's Mask of the Red Death and 1962's epic Lawrence of Arabia. His debut was 1970's Performance, but he's done other work too, like Bad Timing, 1985's Insignificance, and one of my favourites, the Roald Dahl adaptation, The Witches. Producer Frederick Muller would end up as a production manager on the film version of Popeye, whilst the composer Pino Donaggio, whose debut was this film, ended up becoming very prolific indeed, working on Brian De Palma's Carrie, Dress to Kill and Body Double, Joe Dante's Piranha and The Howling, David Schmoller's Tourist Trap, 1981's The Fan, Fulci's Black Cat, Michele Soavi's The Sect, and most recently The Seed of Chucky. Cinematographer Anthony B. Richmond went on to have equal success on other productions, like one of my favourites, Candyman, Legally Blonde, and Naughty's slasher Cherry Falls. Editor Graham Clifford went on to edit the cult classic The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and he even tried his hand at directing an episode of Twin Peaks. The movie, upon release, was geared up to play alongside as a B-movie accompaniment to a more accomplished film – But as the production concluded, the distributor knew that they were dealing with a quality piece of work, and it was reworked to have Don't Look Now as the main feature of a double bill, relegating a film like The Wicker Man as the B-movie side. In spite of the controversy, the film recouped its budget back nigh instantly due to Paramount paying huge money for the distribution rights in the US, and the film also performed very successfully in the cinemas. Don't Look Now was retitled for certain territories, though, In Germany, it was known as When Gondolas Wear Grief, whilst in Italy it was called In Venice, A Shocking Red December, with a distinctly Jallo-style poster to cash in on the popular genre in Italian cinemas. After the uncut ex-certificate version played in the UK, it found its way onto VHS as early as 1979, with an uncut print being distributed by Thorny MI in no less than four different editions over the next two years. This would have been during the time of the Nasties, and despite the film's high credentials, it may not have been immune to attention. Firstly, the sex scene had caused outcry even in the UK, though as mentioned before, James Furman chose not to censor it as he felt it was justifiable. Thorny MI, though, were already known to the police for releasing The Burning and Suspiria, so they would have snooped around the rest of their library. And finally, the film was called Don't Look Now. The Video Nasties list seemed to take an issue with Don't as a title. I mean, on it, there was Don't Go in the Woods, Don't Look in the Basement, Don't Go Near the Park, Don't Go in the House, and Don't Answer the Phone. And additionally, the Video Nasty Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue was also seized under the title Don't Open the Window. There's no confirmed reports, however, of the film being seized, so you'd hope that the police at least had the common sense to leave this gem alone. A legitimate release, though, appeared in 1988 on VHS, uncut at Certificate 18, but it was downgraded to a 15 in 2000 due to the film's explicitness being quite mild compared to 1970s standards. It is now available freely on Blu-ray and DVD, and if you haven't seen it, you should absolutely go out and get it. It's a pretty iconic film for all the right reasons, and it certainly deserves to be a part of your collection.
So, that's it for today, folks. It's the end of me rabbiting for another week. Now, I don't usually do this, but my usual tweets and posts for the week absolutely skyrocketed this last week, especially with the poster art that I posted for Don't Look Now. I was massively shocked by how far that went, which is not usual, so I'm really glad that there's loads of people out there that like this film as much as I do. And it got me thinking that I'm really, really appreciative of everyone who retweets, likes and comments. I don't make any money from podcasting, and I do it all for enjoyment, so it's really heartwarming when people do respond so positively, so a huge thank you to everyone who interacts. Specifically, though, I'd like to thank a few people who do this regularly for me, so people like Gore Blimey, Paul Chandler, Bevan Shortridge, Ryu, Rob's Lib, Tristan Lofting, Kristen Hawes, Crystal Plumage, DJ Evil Dave, and lastly, John Larkin, who's recently got onto the Nasty Pasty. For anyone who's interested, he co-hosts the Screaming Queens podcast, which goes through the same sort of era that I do, but he also does modern horrors as well with a bunch of other queer individuals. They have a really fantastic dark sense of humour and appreciation for this era, so please give them a listen. If anything, just for the sheer amount of dirty jokes, you really won't regret it. Many thanks though to everyone who listens regularly, it really makes it all worthwhile. And by all means, tweet me or send us a message on Facebook, I'd love to hear what everyone thinks of the films that I'm covering. Next week, we're going back to slasher territory, but this time we're bringing the huge twists and turns that will shock, astound and amaze with equal abandon. Next week's slashers with a twist are 1983's Sleepaway Camp and 1986's April Fool's Day. So do tune in next week to the Nasty Pasty podcast. But until then, goodbye everyone, and thanks very much again. Goodbye! (laughs) 